right. Thank you so much, Ben. You're so kind and generous. Um, we have two scripture readings that'll be up on the screen, and Sarah and Ryan Casey are going to read them. Our first is from Psalm 111, 1 to 10. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He has shown his people the power of his works. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice his precepts have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. All right. The uh, second reading is from Mark 12, verse 28 through 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord of our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord the, our, your God with all our heart. Let me say that one more time. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. How well is the church, and when I say the church, I mean Big C Church, all the different expressions of church um, that we may see in 2023, different um, cities, different countries, um, different cultures, um, but also how are we um, as Mosaic Church doing in making room for the life of the mind? That's the question. And I believe, in all humility and sincerity, that while we, of course, always have room to grow, Mosaic Church is actually doing well in this area. Um, I am a professor. When I come in and listen to uh, what's coming from the pulpit up here, whether that's Sarah or Ben or Josh or Ron or whomever, I don't feel like I have to check my mind at the door. I feel like there's an invitation to not only look at the scriptures, but also reflect on the complex relevance of what God teaches in the Bible for today's 
complex world. So I think, well done, I think we're actually um, on the right path to being both biblically orthodox and intellectually sophisticated, but not in a snobbish way, but in a way that makes Christianity actually relevant and not simplistic. And I think the Holy Spirit is with us on that um, because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth as well as a creative spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. And I don't know for sure, but my theory is that Jesus probably is smiling every time you and I take together the reading of the Scriptures and then reflecting on what it means for our place in this particular location, in, our, in modern-day society, and all of the complexity around us. And the whole enterprise of thinking, using our minds, even being intellectual, if you like, is very appropriate for the beginning of a new year, right? Anyone excited about the academic year? Okay. I know that there are several in the room who are secretly excited. And we're in, good, um, we're in a good spot for that because the Scriptures teach us to use our minds to think, to dare to make sense of the world. That's actually what academic disciplines or the subjects that we see in school are. They're disciplines, they're methods, they're traditions, in many cases, century-old traditions that involve thinking and thinkers who have gone before us, who have tried to make sense of the world that we live in or some aspect of the world. So, all those subjects, biology, social studies, psychology, political science, economics, history, history, if a PhD student in history, let's all pray blessings. <laughs> the arts, sports, journalism, English, all the language arts, the list goes on. Each of these disciplines offers something to the thinker, the thinker who is trying to make sense of the world with their faculty of reason, using their mind. And in the Old and New Testament, we have some good instruction about thinking. The Apostle Paul encourages us to think across all of these different disciplines. Uh, in Philippians 4, he writes, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent in any of those subjects that I just mentioned, think about such things. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you that one of the best ways to use your mind is to just marvel at some particular subject of this world. Paul tells his protege, Timothy, to not just take his teaching, but to reflect on them. He says, reflect on what I'm telling you. Colossians 2 and 1 Corinthians 2 signal that we are united with Christ, true to our mantra here at Mosaic, united in the way of Jesus, and by 
being in that privileged position of being in Christ, we can be very confident and expectant to find hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge, even God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and which God destined for even us. But we have to bring some humility to our use of our human faculty of reason. The Scriptures warn us against thinking on our own or thinking without reference to God. So Proverbs 3, lean not on your own understanding. Paul, writing to the Christians at Rome, he tells them to turn from the world's ways of thinking and be transformed by the renewing of their minds. And then there's other passages in the Bible that I, I kind of find gutting for me as an academic. Solomon in Ecclesiastes writes, of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. <laughs> Amen? And there are other dangers that we have to be aware of. You know, even if you and I acquire and even apply loads of knowledge in this world, in the biological sciences and the social sciences, in the arts, in language, even if we do all that, we can't escape the reality that we still live in a fractured world, and we are part of that fractured world. And we really can't um, fully escape the trappings of our own imperfect minds. Uh, in his book, Destiny, Learning to Live by Preparing to Die, David Gibson acknowledges our imperfect thinking. He writes, we have all kinds of inbuilt, flawed assumptions about what it means to live in and even learn about this world. We strive with our minds to master life for our ends. But, you know, the world can't be leveraged to suit me or you, as life was intended by God to be enjoyed, not mastered. So life is to be enjoyed. And what I want to kind of paint a picture of this morning is how we can do that with our minds. You know, I don't believe that fear, duty, shame, pride has any power to help me or you live the Christian life. To, for us to be united in the way of Jesus. There's only one thing that will propel us onward, and that is love, God's love. And we can find joy in love as believers by using our human faculty of our minds. Let me share a little bit about my faith journey. Um, as a young boy... I remember being utterly fascinated by the whole world of astronomy. I was just ch chatting with Sherry about the whole world of, of comets and meteors and even UFOs. The whole world of astronomy, outer space, and that other kind of related topic, the idea of eternity, you know, the universe expanding, all these mesmerizing concepts. 
my mind was blown away as a young boy. And I just found myself falling more and more in love with whoever it was that created and sustains the heavens and the earth. In fact, this is maybe where Ben's comment about me being a geek for, for a God or whatever makes sense. When I was in the fifth grade, I had a birthday party in which I had my parents get us up early at 3 a.m. to do some stargazing. Who does that? We had a telescope. We went out to Warner Park, which you may know here in Manhattan. And we uh, got up early in spring, March of 1986. And I'll show you a clue here of what we were looking at. By the way, do we have any, I think Ryder's fourth grade, where's Ryder? So I was a little bit older than Ryder when we went out to Warner Park. This clue here, this is a uh, copy of a tapestry which adorns a wall in a church in the north of France. And it is a tapestry that celebrates an historical event that happened a thousand years ago um, in England as the Normans from France conquered England and took over in 1066. And just a few months before they successfully conquered England, there was something in the night sky, which, is, which you see here on the bottom of the slide. It was an astronomical phenomenon. And some, through no fault of their own, thought, hey, that seems like that's a pretty good sign, maybe an omen, maybe an indication that we're on the right track. And so the Normans took that sign and they went into England and they conquered, and now all the architecture in central London is Norman. And all of it's recorded in this tapestry, the whole story of the battle that happened in 1066. And that phenomenon is the same phenomenon that I observed a thousand years later at my fifth grade birthday party. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Say again? Yes, Halley's Comet. This is Halley's Comet, named after the astronomer Edmund Halley. This is an image taken by uh, a European spacecraft, 1985-86. And they used their minds, physics, to time the space probe's approach with this comet to get close to get this photograph. And there's even other photographs as they got close to this ball of ice that's orbiting throughout the solar system. But in order to do this, they had to know the orbit of Halley's Comet. And so we have the, the orbit here. It's really getting geeky now, isn't it? Um, so you can see here on the left side, we have Earth and all the other planets close to us, Mars and Venus. And in 1986, when I had my, per my birthday party, we were able to see with our naked eye, as well as my telescope, we were able to see Halley's Comet. And since then, it's been journeying outward. So if you want to go to the next slide here. Um, so in February of 1986, you can kind of see that faint white dot. Um, it was close to Earth, close to the sun. And then this year, in 2023, 
it is now at the edge of its orbit. So 2023 is a turning point. And I find this mesmerizing. So the, the year, the length of time it takes Halley's Comet to do a full loop is 76 years. Incidentally, Susie's uh, great-grandfather saw Halley's Comet in 1910. And then he went blind, bless him. And when it came back in 86, he could just remember what it was like in 1910. But it's the same comet. It's, it's amazing. So 2061 is when Halley's Comet will come back around. And what is cool, and what I want you to just ponder for a second here, is right now, like as we're sitting in this room, this ball of ice is on the very edge of its orbit, and it is actively making a turn back to come back. Twenty twenty three, a significant year in this small slice of God's creation. And this is the kind of stuff that, as a boy, I was fascinated by. And I just fell more and more uh, into kind of uh, awe. I was awestruck by all of this. But let's go back to our question. How well is the church doing in making room for the life of the mind? One scholar in Canada talking about church in recent time kind of brings a critique that I think, I, I believe is fair. N.K. Clifford says this. He says, the church's activism, whether in religion or politics, and the church throughout its history has been active at different times in religion and in politics. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. But that activism, according to Clifford, has always tended towards something unfortunate, an oversimplification of issues, and a substitution of inspiration and zeal for critical analysis and serious reflection. And I think we all have experienced this. And it, it, I do not like to put down my brothers and sisters in Christ because we're family, all the, again, big C, all part of the church. And we can always at any given time compliment one another, even if we meet brothers and sisters who do oversimplify or who do have nothing but weird zeal. You know any Christians with weird zeal? Do you know any Christians with weird zeal? Yes, this is common. But it has not always been this way. Um, many of the pioneers of modern science were believers. Descartes, Newton, Kepler, Galileo. Galileo, one of my favorite man crushes, amazing astronomer. John Locke, Nicholas Copernicus. Nicholas Copernicus, as well as Galileo, they both later get apologies from the church for being declared heretics for their views of astronomy. Michael Faraday, Boyle, Mendel, Kelvin, Pasteur, Pasteur of importance, food, important food microbiology fame, my field. Lister, all of these scientists 
were believers. They were given an encouragement by their brothers and sisters in Christ, their parents, and most definitely the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of creativity, to ponder and think and use their minds. And what's amazing, what we have to take from these pioneers of modern science is that they did not stand in their day, many of them during the Renaissance of the 15th and 16th centuries, they did not stand with this mindset that believing and investigating complexity required them to abandon their belief in a supernatural, transcendent, miraculous God. They were able to hold that together. And that's the good news for us as Christian thinkers, is that you and I do not have to abandon the reality that we worship, yes, an invisible God who is transcendent, who is supernatural. But that doesn't mean that He doesn't still create and sustain the visible, the observable, the events in history, the sociological complexities that we oftentimes hear Josh talking about. It's all valid. It's all part of what it means to think and be a follower of Christ with our minds. So what can we learn from the two passages that Sarah and Ryan read? Well, if I was to sum up in a couple of phrases, this is what I would say. I would say the life of your and my mind, we need to keep this in mind. Thinking is about you, but not just you. There is real joy and fulfillment. One of those mingle questions, you know, what areas of knowledge do you want to grow in? The reality is, it feels good when you learn a new concept. Maybe if, you're, if you've been in school recently or if you're in school now, that feeling when you finally understand how to do long division or you finally understand the significance of a historical event in history or you finally understand some aspect of psychology or sociology, there is a real joy that comes from doing things well. Much like there's a joy that comes from exercising skills. Like when I mow the yard, I find it life-giving and fulfilling because I, in all humility, feel like I'm doing it well. So it is about you. Like when you learn things, part of that is for you. I believe that the Holy Spirit wants you to experience some of His love as you learn. But at the same time, it isn't just about you and I experiencing joy and fulfillment and doing it on our own. There's more. To kind of imagine this, I wanted to go to the arts. We had an art night uh, during Holy Week here at Mosaic uh, last April, and on Good Friday, we pondered different pieces of art. There's so much we can learn from the arts. <clears throat> one of, um, I think this is one of Ben's favorite artists, Caravaggio, painted this picture um, from the late 16th century. And it's a picture about a Greek, so not biblical, but a Greek legend uh, named Narcissus, where we get the word narcissist, bad. 
And this beautiful young man, Narcissus, was captivated by his own reflection. And according to the legend, he could not tear himself away from looking at his own reflection. And he died of thirst and starvation by the water's edge, just as he was admiring himself in his conceit. And this is actually a very good image of the human condition that is common when we use our minds without involving God. Our thinking sometimes uh, involves us trying to go it alone. You know, one of my favorite definitions for sin is human self-sufficiency. You and I trying to live our lives on our own. I'm sufficient. I can figure it out. And doing that without God's guidance, that's the kind of stuff that the Scriptures warn against. Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, he wisely said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Amen? And 1 Corinthians 8 warns us that knowledge sometimes, although I love the world of knowledge, that's my field, it can also perversely puff us up into a kind of blind ignorance, thinking that we have it all figured out. Caravaggio's use of darkness and light in the painting uh, amplifies all of this. Narcissus, like all of us, is illuminated from above. His abilities, his mind even, is a gift from the Father of lights who is above. Yet he has turned from the source of those physical endowments, and he's looking down, admiring himself. And what does he see? It's near darkness. Narcissus is looking at his reflection, but if only he would look up, he would find freedom. I think one of the great advances in the church in the last, probably during the pandemic, we can maybe have um, one of the pastors here reflect on this. I think there's been more room made. I think you might agree, Josh, with introspection. Like, it's, it's good to check in with how we're doing, what we're feeling. The whole world of mental health, I think, is, albeit late, made inroads, much-needed inroads in the life of churches. And I think introspection, in that sense, has been really helpful and is helpful and appropriate. But we don't rely only on introspection. It isn't just you and me by ourselves looking inward. It's also by turning to God, His ways, His works, His promises, that we find freedom. And we also need to practice. This is something that uh, Susie and I have tried to do intentionally, is practice exercising our attention on others. It's so easy to just be focused on ourselves. And Paul teaches this, of course, Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. So, that's kind of what I mean with this world of using our minds. Like, it, it, it is easy to kind of just love learning. Like, I, I could spend days, as long as I had someone throw me plates of food, I could spend days in libraries. I, I, I find it energizing. 
But it isn't just about that. Joy in learning um, is real, but joy in using your God-given physical endowments, including your mind, to help others, that is the real joy of the Christian life. So, let's look a little more closely at the readings that Sarah and Ryan provided. The first, Psalm 111. Um, I'll just reread it here uh, again. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He has shown his people the power of his works. The works of his hands are faithful and just. And you can kind of see on the slide, we've bolded the use of the word works. Psalm 111 is um, an acrostic poem, 11 verses, 22 lines, corresponding with the 22 letters of the of the Hebrew alphabet. And whenever we translate, or people, not me, I don't translate, when people translate um, the Old Testament, sometimes we lose the intended um, paragraph sentence structure. And I've tried to kind of break it off here halfway through verse 7, because there really should be a break um, when we transition in this psalm from the works of God, and what we will come to in a moment, his precepts. So we have, in this uh, slide, works being used five times. And that, uh, our English word works, is referencing both the natural wonders, the Halley's Comets of the world, the things that we marvel at, as well as God's more obviously supernatural works, like the resurrection. And these are the works, the psalmist, who is not, most people don't think it's David. They don't know who it is. But this psalmist is encouraging us to use our minds to study and to reflect on these works. Um, Back to outer space. I read two days ago that the James Webb Space Telescope, one of NASA's devices up in space, uh, caught a glimpse and took a photograph of what is the oldest picture, sorry, a picture of the oldest visible star in our universe. This star, 12.9 billion light years away when it sent us the image that we took, this star that is now, because the universe is expanding, 28 billion light years away. And we're getting a small glimpse of it. Matt Redman, a a, uh, musician, listened to his music on Spotify. You know, this Matt Redman's led tons of worship, gatherings, concerts, uh, accomplished musician himself, but he says that all of these space telescopes, the Hubble Space Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, he says these telescopes are the best worship leaders. Do you you get what I'm saying or what he's saying? Just by opening up 
our minds to the wonders of God's created order, including outer space. We are brought into um, worship. But in addition to the natural world, we are encouraged to ponder and think about God's works. Just one I want to mention here. I like to think about God's work in the incarnation, so Christmas. Christmas, we, we talk about and celebrate God coming to earth as a baby, as a human, being incarnated. But think about what that was like for God. So God, we know, is eternal, right? He lives in eternity. He's not locked into time. But when the incarnation happened, when Jesus, when God takes on flesh, suddenly God is locked into time. I think sometimes when we read the Scriptures, we read the life of Jesus, we think, oh yeah, Jesus is God. He knows what's coming next. Like if he was like playing chess and knew every single next step. But no, actually part of God taking on the limitations of humanity despite still being God, meant he did not know every next step, which would explain why God, why Jesus, is crying out to the Father about what's next. And that's something that makes Jesus be able to relate to us really well. Because if you're like me, you don't know what's next. Does that make sense? And these are like massive concepts. These are the works of God that we ought to reflect on. The second part, the second bracketed part of Psalm, one, one of, of Psalm 111 begins in the, at the end of verse 7. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice his precepts have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Precepts, teachings, the words of God, these are in many ways more enduring than even God's works. The teachings of Jesus, which we amplify when we gather and receive teaching here on a Sunday morning, the teachings of Jesus work, they endure, they will always be valid. These are the precepts including the seemingly contradictory ones, like the key to freedom is generosity. That seems odd, but no, the teachings of Jesus are valid. And you can think about all kinds of complex teachings in the Bible and reflect on them. One of my favorite ones, which is true but hard to understand, is what Paul teaches on throughout the New Testament, the idea that you and I are sinners prone to human sin and selfishness, yet because of God's grace, we're declared righteous. We are right, righteous and sinners at once. That does not make sense to me. Yet, that's the kind of precept that we're encouraged to reflect on and to be filled with wonder about. So it's all practical. Um, the Psalm, Psalm 111, um, 
echoes some of the psalms that David wrote early in uh, the book of Psalms. My grandmother's favorite psalm was Psalm 16, uh, written by David. And in Psalm 16, um, we find David expressing how he's doing and dialoguing with God in the midst of a time of desperation. David is on the run from his enemy, King Saul. David is a refugee. Yet he talks in Psalm 16 about finding his security, his refuge in God. Um, He actually uh, uses the language a couple of chapters later in Psalm 18. He says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge. You know, this summer, there's been all this cultural craze about Taylor Swift. Have you heard? (laughs) And, you know, I think there's enough freedom in the church, in Christianity, to kind of have fun with our minds from time to time in sewing in culture that we see today with what the Scriptures say, or or, or even Bible characters. So, my latest thing is, I like to speculate when I read the Psalms, I speculate about, is there a line in a Taylor Swift song that David could relate to? And... It's kind of, this is, am I I'm okay to keep preaching? Okay. And, you know, as David is on the run, full of anxiety, not knowing what's next, yet declaring that God is his rock, you know, filled with wonder about God, but also wondering about what's next. You know, I think if David in his cave or wherever he was, if he had Spotify and he was going through music, and he heard a song like Enchanted by Taylor Swift, I think this stanza he would find somewhat relevant, even if Taylor Swift was thinking, of, thinking about something slightly different. The lingering, these are the, this, is the, this is taken directly from, this, this, uh, from the great philosopher Taylor Swift. The lingering question kept me up, 2 a.m., 2 a.m. You know what it's like at 2 a.m. when you wake up? It's just you and God. 2 a.m. Who do you love? I wonder till I'm wide awake. Who do you love? And now I'm pacing back and forth. That's what David's doing. He's sitting there, who do I love? Who do I trust in? in my anxiety. And I love what David declares in Psalm 16. He says, this is what we can do. He says, even at night, even at 2 a.m., my heart instructs me to love and trust in you, my God. By the way, why would it be uh, relevant to think about like, something cultural like music and sew that into our faith or connect that somehow to our faith. Could it be that God has given us creative abilities and the doctrine of creation says that we all can learn from one another because everybody bears the image of God. So we should expect, whether it's history, mathematics, 
psychology, arts, we should expect to, to find little glimpses of this world created and sustained by God. I'm going to stop there, but I encourage you tonight, before you go to bed, to go to Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. And the um, passage there shows Jesus giving a good answer. And it's largely about love, how we love God and love others. And the key message is that this is a holistic effort. It isn't just with our minds. It's with our hearts. It's with our soul. It's with our mind. It's with our strength. And as you go to bed tonight and read that passage, ask God to help you in your human faculties to love and trust Him more with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you help me and all of us when we sit down at our desks, when we turn on the computer, when we open up a book, that these workstations would be worship stations, that we wouldn't see them as a way to get a grade or to just tick something off the list, but to enter into worship. In Jesus' name.